0: All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Austin. Hey, everybody. Marcelo. Hey, everyone. And we do not have Josh, but we do have a lovely new guest star. Welcome, Sierra Noe.
1: Hi, I'm glad to be on.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Sierra currently works for Oshkosh Manufacturing, where she maintains safety and environmental compliance for the manufacturing sector. Her facility welds on metal, to give you kind of an idea of what she does. And her role helps improve processes and improve their safety culture. Glad to have you on. Nice to have uh, one of our former debate composite. Slash competitors on board with us again. And we're going to give you a few announcements, so I'll kick it over to Austin to get that started.
2: All right. So for all you liars out there or betweeners, I, I don't really know what to call everybody, but if you're already subscribed, good job. For those of you that aren't, we are on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel as well for all your between the liars needs. Uh, feel free to follow us on all the social media platforms so you can stay up to date with all of our debates and discussions. Now pass it to Sierra for the next part of the announcements.
1: So we will be live streaming whenever ever possible. It'll be Saturdays at noon central. So join so you can respond, give us your comments and feedback. Um, there'll be a live stream access through YouTube channel and Facebook. So we're hoping can join us.
3: And Peace. finally, we have March. So this segment is sponsored by Monica Satera and Humble Bee Studios. Um, you can see them for all your digital design needs. Um, we have a, We had a giveaway for this through them. So thank you.
0: And today we're going to be discussing the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better agenda. And then we'll also give you a brief update on the government debt ceiling. So if you've been confused on what's been going on, you're in the right place. We're going to try to do our best to make that less confusing. Hopefully we don't muddy the waters, but we'll kind of give you the rundown on what's currently happening and then we'll debate and give our opinions on what we think about that situation. So to start with Congress is set to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill which is the $1.5 trillion budget. Pretty normal. It's something they try to pass every single year and then they're also going to be voting on the Build Back Better agenda. This is the portion that President Biden campaigned on and that is estimated to run $3.5 trillion. I'll say this about government spending it usually tends to be far more on the under uh, budgeting side it's probably estimated to go to about five five and a half trillion and then together they've grouped these into the five trillion dollar package okay so House Democrats, led by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, are determined to pass both of these bills together in one giant bundle. Essentially because they don't think that they can actually get the votes individually, they're going to try to call for them together as a bundle. So that's kind of what has been up. They postponed it, pushed it off because they didn't have enough promised votes.
3: Honestly, you have to give it to them. It's hard enough to pass one thing. I don't blame them for trying to pass everything in one uh, fell swoop. Um, The infrastructure bill has received some bipartisan support, but it's still very much a divided issue. Uh, And it is very contingent on whether they can pass the bill or not. Uh, But it's worth noting that on the Democrat side, Senators Manchin and Kristen Sinema oppose the Build Back Better Act, contingent on some modifications, uh, but we don't know that they usually don't do those discussions behind closed doors. That knocks down the Senate support for Democrats to 48. They need a tie at least so that the vice president can break it. But I would also like to add that that also means that you have 50 other people on the Senate that are opposing the bill, and that is like every single Republican. So there is some minor Democrat opposition for the bill. That's not included in literally half of
2: the room. And speaking of the Democrat opposition, Senator Manchin did stand with the original deal, $1.5 trillion in spending that was agreed upon uh, with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And like Ryan mentioned earlier, that's the typical governmental budget. But that's kind of what they spend per year. Um, any additional spending over that would typically require means testing, which is basically proving the necessity of the spending and proving that it is going to be correctly allocated and used properly, which I think we could all agree would be a great thing to hold the government accountable on.
1: So kind of looking at the current situation, right, there's a lot of turmoil in, turmoil in the Democratic Party. Obviously, they need 50 votes to get this to pass, all of them supporting. Um, you have Manchin and Cinema who are putting a lot of pressure on that progressive party saying, like, we need to cut this down in order to support this huge package. We can also see that Biden is trying to jump up a lot of support in Michigan last week. He's saying there's a lot of opponents of the BBB are complicit in America's decline. So one of the things he likes to say is this is a pivot point for America. He's saying this happens every few years. Um, and for him, this Build Back Better plan is really his attempt to get past this pivot point. So he's really putting a lot of, uh, I guess, pressure on this point. And then I think another kind of part of the current situation is you have the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell who's wanting to cut a short-term budget bill. So it's all wrapped up into one big, complicated, important issue.
3: They're trying to make the government survive because they're running out of money right now. So it's like basically trying to run this bill as much as possible. Well, at the same time, hey, by the way, we're also like, we don't have enough money to keep surviving. I think the uh, the last, before they passed this short-term budget, they were going to run out of money by like October 18th. It's going to run a little longer now, but, but they do really need to pass the budget.
0: The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had cut that uh, short-term budget deal and extended it to, uh, I think it was sometime in December, and he's received quite a bit of backlash from the Republican constituents saying that like what we had on we were playing a game of chicken and you caved. Some of the news cycles have been running that you know hey this is you know indicative of uh, Mitch McConnell's getting out of the way finally of something that's wildly popular. What's interesting here though and I think this was more of a strategic move on his part and this is just my opinion here because basically what he's done is he gave them the extension so that we don't default on our budget because we also have going on here the Senate has to vote on whether or not to raise the debt ceiling If they don't vote yay on that, then the U.S. is going to default, which if you're familiar with student loans, it means that basically everything becomes due so we'd have trillions of dollars of debt that we now have to pay back. So the reason I think this is strategic on Mitch McConnell's part is because he kicked it out and he's now given the Democratic Party time to figure out and hopefully sort out some of their infighting that's going on. You do have uh, Senators Manchin and Sinema who are joining at that point the majority opinion that we don't want to pass this or at least not in its current form gives them time in theory to be able to sort out some of their things. I know Manchin had told them, I think it was last week, you get one. Pick one of these major agendas, run with it, I'll back you there. And so it hopefully it's kicked the can far enough down the road that we don't wind up defaulting. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh, just Mitch McConnell cutting that deal. Do you think it was caving? Do you think it was strategic?
3: I like it. And it's not a popular opinion. I feel like keeping the government running shouldn't be like like oh i can't believe you did that I, I i think it's a i think it's a good move and it's not like it puts a lot of pressure off of democrats because since they are the ones who are having problems the republicans have decided already they're going to oppose the bill no matter what so it's the democrats who have to try to figure out how to get mansion and cinema on their side
1: i kind of agree with you on that marcelo i I like that he's trying to get it to go forward because when you think about it, our nation's been kind of on this rocky road for the past year and a half. There's been a lot of supply chain disruptions. There's been a lot of job disruptions. There's been a lot of economic disruptions. So the last thing we need is for our government to shut down when when we are in the middle of a crisis. Um, you know, we are having a good economic performance, but there's still a lot of, you know, COVID is a real issue. Supply chain is a real issue. So this isn't the time for our government to, to shut down.
2: I think Sierra raises a good point. Um, not to say that I'm going to put a lot of faith in Mitch McConnell. Um, I don't particularly like the guy, but this does feel like a play out of necessity. And like Sierra mentioned, with everything we've gone through the past year and a half, uh, I think him kind of fielding it so that they have the opportunity to talk through these important issues without having as much of a time crunch on their hands. It's like a necessary evil in this case. Like that, we'll get to opinions on the bill specifically as we go through this talk and everything, but definitely feels like a play out of necessity on his part.
0: You had kind of a unique perspective from President Biden in the last couple of weeks, which has been usually the president tends to apply pressure to the more radical proposals and get them to cut out certain things in order to compromise. What we've seen from President Biden in the last couple of weeks is this is my agenda. This is what I stood for on my platform and we need to pass it all now. So the pressure has been directed at Manchin and cinema rather than at trying to get the compromise through and maybe pass a portion now, portions later. So that's been unique. I wouldn't say unheard of, but I don't recall the president going with the minority uh, opinion very often in the last several presidencies, at least. Usually they're pushing if they're going to be involved more for either get out of the way, which we have seen from President Biden towards Republicans, or uh, let's find a way to compromise. And usually the pressure is applied to the outliers and then they lose what they wanted at that point.
3: I think Biden had a a choice to make between siding with the progressives in, in his party or siding with the moderates in uh, in, in the Democrat in, in the democratic party. Um and I think I love the choice personally. I think it's great that he decided to for once and unlike some of his campaign speeches, actually try to pass things that he considered meaningful. Because I feel like if compromising was the game that he was going to play, he was going to lose. And I, I, he might still lose, right? We don't know if the bill is going to pass or not, hopefully. Um, and they're going to have to do some compromising in the middle. But I feel like if you start a conversation at a position where you want to give in to the demands of the other side, um, I feel like you're already losing. And yeah, it sounds very confrontational. and I'll, We'll probably talk more about this later. But I feel like by starting at a very aggressive, aggressive, like, this is what I want and this is is my bill, this needs to be passed. He sets himself up for a much better negotiation later. I'm very happy that he's doing it and I hope he continues to do it.
0: To make this more complicated, we've we've alluded to this, but the debt ceiling is a third package that they need to figure out. So just for those who might just be joining or uh, if you're still just completely confused, you have the Build Back Better agenda, you have the infrastructure, budget, normal portion, and then you also have the debt ceiling. This is also something that we've seen as an annual crisis threatening, careening towards a governmental shutdown. Basically, if they don't vote to raise it, then we're going to default. But this requires the 60 votes, which means that the Senate Democrats need uh, at least 10 Republicans in addition to the Mansion and cinema votes in order to pass this. So we have to vote on that, and then the Republicans clearly have been refusing to vote to raise that because of all of the spending that the Democrats are trying to get through. If they approve uh, of this portion, then they technically will have the funds to be able to do it. They still have to vote on it, but the funding would be there. They just need to allocate it at that point. It's important to note that Senate, Senate Democrats cannot pass the budget reconciliation, or they can't pass the debt ceiling by bare majority unless they use budget reconciliation. Go back a couple of episodes, we talked about budget reconciliation. We already talked about and unpacked a bit of the main portions of this bill. We're still trying to fight through this, is what they're doing. It's, what, six, seven ish weeks later, and they still haven't haven't passed or voted this down. So, if they use budget reconciliation, which they can use twice annually, then they've used one of their I would say silver bullets, right? So, they're hoping they can get it so they don't have to use it because you can use budget reconciliation for these other portions, like they're trying to apply pressure to for Manchin and So kick down the road. Uh, thoughts on the debt ceiling? Anything that we might need to clarify before I move on to our thoughts?
2: With a $3.5 trillion price tag, I certainly hope it takes seven or eight weeks to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I,
1: I think my only other comment is I, I agree with Marcelo on like, I'm glad he's taking a strong stance, but is now the time to take that stance? Like the, the Build Back Better plan doesn't have a deadline. It, it doesn't have to necessarily pass now, but our budget reconciliation does. So I'm glad there's a stance being taken, but I, I do question is, is now the time to take that stance and, and potentially jeopardize, you know, going into a furlough for a lot of Americans that would be affected by it.
3: I, I think before we get into the 2022 legislative session um, and then possibly into the midterms, I feel like it, it is, there's really the way politics works here and like election season that basically never ends is um, they know they have like this one good year, just like Obama did when he was president. He had control of like both chambers in the House and in the Senate. Um, it's like, I feel like they know that they have their best shot at passing something in the first year of the of, of the presidency and then they can coast through things i feel like if they fail to pass something now from a political standpoint if they don't pass the build back better plan now they're gonna they will lose the midterms like that will happen i don't i don't see a way for them like claiming that the government was worth something if they didn't even pass their flagship bill
0: when when you have all three branches of government i think it's significantly or uh, the president the two congressional houses uh those three it's kind of hard to make the argument in my opinion that you know <laughs> there it's it's not on them you can argue that the republicans are blocking and that they're not cooperating but at the same time this that double, double it, it is but the double edged sword if your agenda is so radical and you don't have the votes then arguably you're not representing your constituents in that way Manchin and cinema are in Sinema is in a, a purple state and her constituents that put her in there uh, are not as interested in this. And Manchin certainly uh, does not have the group of people that want that. So they run the risk, if they go along with this, of being uh, run out of Congress. But also they run the risk of being, at least Cinema runs the risk of being primaried if she doesn't. Because the Democratic Party will say, all right, you're not going along with the Democratic agenda. You're done. So what's interesting to me is the stance that Biden is taking. And I think, Marcelo, was a nice segue to kind of our thoughts on this. President Biden campaigned as the center moderate, the return to normalcy. And then he ate Bernie Sanders' progressive agenda. And and that's what he's campaigning on now. So the constituents who voted for him off of the return to normalcy and the more moderate agenda probably are not not happy with where he's at in taking this strong stance. You're going to have the more progressive wing of the, the constituents there that will be. Uh, but in a sense, he's not performing the way he had campaigned and was elected. It on.
3: To be fair, he did start going more to the left to get those people. By the end of the primaries, he did meet with Bernie Sanders to put the package together. Um, they, he he met with people from the, the Sunrise Movement on climate, uh, from people from uh, the Black Lives Matter movement on building the racial justice uh, packages that, that that he put together. Again, he. has met with and he did meet with leaders and this was way before the actual election took place near the end of the primaries when it was clear that he was going to be the the candidate so he did take some steps i agree with you that maybe we expected him to be more moderate than he is right now but we have had way too many way too many times has a radical campaign just to become a moderate in power i feel like doing the opposite for a change is good obviously this happened with uh, Kristen Cinema. Like she campaigned as, as she had like a, a very, I would say, fruitful career as a some, somewhat of a radical. And then she got into power. She started taking money from lobbyists. And, you know, now she is one of two people standing against this plan, which was, you know, seemingly everything that she stood for uh, before she got elected.
2: I know Mansion and Cinema have been taking a lot of flack, obviously, for you know, defecting from the party, quote unquote, at this point, but I do think there's something a little bit more interesting and nuanced to look at it from. I am kind of see it as a hopeful thing because I'm kind of sick of two solid voting blocks butting heads against each other, 50-50 split. I would actually, like, I don't even like that. Personally, I'm not a big fan of this bill, but that's further down the road. We'll get to that. I don't like the monoculture in each of the parties. I don't like that all the Republicans vote exactly this way in line with the party. I don't like that all the Democrats vote in this way in line with the party. If anything, I would like to see some of the Republicans take a more nuanced stance on some things. Not to attribute too much positive motive to Manchin or Cinema, I don't know exactly. Like, I I like some of the things Manchin has said of why he's opposing this. Not going to try to get into their intent. But it is kind of nice to see people defect from the party line. Maybe we could have a little bit more nuance in some of our, you know, at the level of Congress where we should be having most of the nuance and discussions. That would be preferable. So I don't know. That's a trend that, like, it would be kind of nice to see a little bit of variability. People not towing the party line 100% of the time on both sides. That'd be preferable.
3: I mean, it always sucks to be the outlier in a way because you get roasted by your party. You know, we know what happened with McCain after he like sort of disagreed with Trump slightly on one thing, and then he got bombed on Twitter, bombed in, the <laughs> in person really too. like it's it was it was really, you know, it's it's if anything, I, I guess it takes a lot of will power to be against the majority of the party. And in the case of these people, I would say it also takes a lot of money.
0: Sierra, what do you think on this?
1: I feel like it's going to take something really radical to shake things up. Like, it's going to upset one base or the other. Like, what would happen if we did pass this bill, right? That's like a, that is to me a pivotal point where or wow, we just adopted a really kind of socialistic policy that's taking care of a lot of these different things, but we're still living in this like capitalistic state. So it it does bring us into this, I guess you could call it new era of how do we balance a socialistic social plan with a capitalistic economic policy that our government sustains. So I almost wonder if like the way to kind of get us out of this monotone, kind of like what you said, Austin, like this monotone policy is do we vote on something? radical that forces that change to happen instead of just waiting for the parties to kind of come to it on their own so i'm excited for this plan there are things i like there's things i don't but one thing that makes me wonder is would this be a catalyst for that change
0: Also stemming from that idea, congressional members hate having to take a hard stance. Well, you get the political answer. Uh, Right now, you can have Manchin and Cinema saying, I just don't like this one part. They could be against the entire bill, but they get to uh, cover themselves and say, I just don't like this one part. That's why I'm holding it up. That rings true through every member in Congress right now. So in a sense, uh, the way that they're trying to package this, and I mentioned this the last time we talked about this in our human infrastructure discussion, you don't get a point by point. Uh, Manchin is in favor of this particular portion. He voted yay. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is not in favor of this one. She voted nay. You don't have that, which what's interesting with the way that uh, they were trying to package everything together before the Democrats realized they were running out of time in this session to pass the stuff was they were actually projected to have to vote individually on each and every one of these, which is why it would have taken so long past the two weeks. What I would have like to see from that is who exactly votes for what because now they don't get to politis-speak their way out of something they have to actually show through their vote and stand by it for better or for worse i mean you're not going to agree with everything a politician does but at least at that point they can't come back later and say well i voted for this thing because i'm speaking to this party and now oh i'm in the midwest and you know this is important so of course i wasn't in favor of getting rid of the frag you know stuff like that like i, I think that that would have also helped shake things up too
2: I think the key word to play into that is transparency, which personally, that's the biggest thing I'm looking for. I'm...
0: That was what I was looking for. <laughs> there you go. Yeah.
2: But uh, I think that brings up my uh, the time for my weekly PSA that the uh, infrastructure bill is, what, what have we said? It's like 2,200 to 2,500 pages and oh, yeah, yeah. nobody has read the whole thing. Yet again, this is what week eight of me calling for Congress to have to read every word of everything that hits the floor because I would love to see them vote on individual issues. Just like you said, Ryan, hold them accountable for the ideas that they're trying to push through because their constituency needs to know. They voted them in to do specific things if they're able to do these blanket votes for completely amorphous, multi-trillion dollar, 2000 page documents, you don't know what they stand for or if they're even advocating for you. It's easy to vote on generalities, but if we get down to specifics like we should be getting, I really think the country would be in a better spot.
3: You know how much I hate agreeing with you all, but, but it, it it's, it's, <laughs> it's true, like it. <laughs> it's okay should they vote on everything individually sure yes but that, that whatever you, they, you know they, they should do it especially in things like you know child tax credit because I don't think anybody in this room or any any at any point have any of you said hopefully like no I don't think people should have that child tax credit I don't think people should have child child care like you know that's not a thing so I would love to see our representatives actually say that because I know that some of them are against those things <laughs> so to get them on tape saying those things that would be it would be nice but and there's always a but I, w- I will say that like while I don't know what Christian Sinema thinks about each single individual policy in this Build Back Better plan but I do kind of guess what Ted Cruz thinks of every single thing in this bill I think he's just like mostly a no and you know I I don't think it would take a genius to, to think that like if these things came to a vote individually which would take more time fine whatever you know time is what we have hopefully I would I would see the the 50 people who are... And I love that Austin brings up like, yeah, we were, we're laser focusing on cinema we're laser focusing on mansion because they're like the odd ones out. You're not talking about the 50 other people who are saying no in every single step along the way because they're supposed to, you know, they're supposed to say no. They're Republicans, you know, they they hate the bill. I would like to see them put on blast more often
2: not to mention the 48 and lockstep that said they love it. It's like, that's also equally terrifying
3: for me. But I love it. I, lo- I cannot put them on blast because I love it too. So I, I have to put on blast the ones who I hate.
0: <laughs> I'll throw this out there. I'm not in favor of the tax breaks and it's not because I don't think people should get child care. But because of the way it's allocated, they don't do it as a needs-based system. So, for example, a dual-income family that makes, and it's been a hot minute since I actually read the specifics, so don't quote me on this, but the numbers are close enough. If you make $200,000 between your two incomes, you're still eligible for $14,000 roughly in child tax credit subsidies. And that's not a tax break like we've got. That is, you are credited and given $14,000 out of the budget. I'm opposed for that reason, and I'm going to continue to ride the train of, I disagree with the federal government as the broad sweeping money pit that we pull from rather than actually making sure it's needs based because we take money from people who need it to give it to people who also need it but you wind up creating a worse situation overall in general. So I think that transparency, not just for who's voting for what Marcelo, i take it a step further. Transparency for what's actually in these bills because the Democratic Party has had the pleasure and the, I I guess the word would be uh, convenience, of being able to hit, we're in favor of tax credits, we're in favor of the main ticket items. They've crammed a lot of stuff in there that they haven't talked about. Transparency on what they're actually passing, like Marcella mentioned, would be key there as well, I think.
3: I think I could have stopped you if I disagree with the
2: federal government.
3: <laughs> Obviously, from the beginning, we're in like in very different positions because I love the federal government, you know. I want I want more of it. And in this specific situation, uh, like when the, the example that you mentioned on the child tax credits, that it's like, oh, well, you know, it's not need space, so people who don't need it should get it. My radical take is that everyone needs child help with taking care of their children so everyone should get it i don't really care if the people who earn like have a million dollars get it if that means that people who earn like fifty thousand dollars get it i think if everyone gets it that means like and i'm quoting somebody much more than me here and i cannot and i cannot remember their name but it's like i feel like if you have two positions one of them is either nobody gets it because you're fearing that people who don't deserve it will get it or everybody gets it knowing that some people who you know, don't need it, we'll get it. I would much rather be on the side of more people getting it and acknowledging than some people who don't need it will get it, rather than not giving it to anyone and then preventing people who desperately need it from getting it. I feel like more is better in this case. And I you know that's 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 my philosophical
0: position. So for me, I would say that that's a bit of a false dichotomy propagated by the dual party system because it doesn't have to be these people get it or these people don't. The deserving might be one of the people who get it, What you said, Marcel, because they're writing it in that way. And because they're writing it, they have the power to be more specific. They just choose not to be because they don't. So like, I feel like the problem and the criticism for the federal government still stands and doesn't make the situation any better because you're...
3: It's not a false dichotomy if we live in a dichotomy. Like, if, if I give you a bill <laughs> and you're like hey i want to give child tax credit to people and you're like oh this is not good enough no and it's like okay well here's another one no what what ends up happening is that we stay in the status quo where you have people who need this aid that it, are not getting it mm-hmm. so so in, in a way it is you know bring your bill but i would rather your bill not have like so many tax cuts for the the one percent that that's that would be, <laughs> that would be my preference
0: well, and that's that's what Manchin has been raked over the coals for because he had originally agreed to the $1.5 trillion. You had the infrastructure bill and then $1.5 trillion effectively funding one of their three main platform items. And because his counter-proposal didn't meet everything they wanted, he did actually to his credit try to propose something more moderate that would bridge the gap. And he was decimated. The president put him on blast. The progressive party put him on blast. The media put him on blast. So that's that that's That's contributing, in my opinion, to the problem of why we don't get that third middle ground and why we continue in that dichotomy that you mentioned, Marcelo.
1: So I have a thought that's kind of related and it just kind of stems off a little bit. To me, there's a huge difference between like sustainment and a stimulus. So like all of these tax credits we've received over the past year, whether it was Corona whether it was, you know, stimulus packages we've passed over the past 10 years, all of those are just a, just kind of a, a boost. And then everyone goes back down to where they're still struggling, right? Whereas this package is more like a sustainment. It provides you with different healthcare costs. It provides you with childcare. It changes a little bit of how we finance laws. So... I think in the past, we've tried to do these stimuluses to say, hey, these people are disadvantaged. Let's give them a stimulus. Whereas now we're looking to a different kind of policy where it's like, hey, these people are disadvantaged. Let's actually set them up to be successful for the next 10 years instead of for six months where they use that stimulus money. Another huge thing for me in policy is what is the goal of the policy? And is that policy set up to make that goal succeed? So for example, I think this policy has two goals. It's got a social goal to improve people's ability to work. And then it has an economic goal to create that economic sustainment. Um, so I, I think looking at it that way can kind of tell you, will this package succeed in providing benefit to both those areas? And I I think it's more likely it'll help the social aspect, but I don't know if this if this will actually achieve the economic outcome that it that it's wants. So that's kind of where I'm sitting.
0: I think that's a good distinction. Marcelo Austin, what do you guys think on that?
2: I think that it really is a good way to frame that discussion, like split it up into, like Sierra was saying, the social and then the economic goals. Given our past year, I'd say the economic goals are pretty darn important. But um, I think that's a really good way of thinking of these issues. That's that was a good point.
3: Um, changing the status quo is hard, you know, more, more at 11, I guess. Uh, but it, it's, it's just very, it's very complicated. And, you know, that's a catch. That's, that's a cop-out phrase. But I think obviously we I see this bill as something that is like Sierra said, trying to, trying to change things, not for one time, because you had people who were homeless before you got your $600 in the mail. And then they were homeless after you had people who were having, who were unemployed before and, unemployed after and you saw this aid and the fact that some people in the government see this aid not only temporary aid but also not enough aid as something that people should be ashamed of and people shouldn't get uh it's just mind-boggling to me because it doesn't matter if i didn't need the aid you know i certainly appreciated it but i also know that because i got it that means that many other people got it too well i I feel like
1: you know like the aid like a $600 aid to a homeless person, the goal of that aid isn't to make them not be homeless. The goal of that aid is to boost our economy, you know, so this bill is intended to actually help people improve their situation instead of focusing on just benefiting the economy right now, you know?
3: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think while those two goals are different, they can also be, you know, if you enhance people's material conditions meaningfully for a... In, in a long term, you you get that economic benefit that you're that you're striving for. You not only see the GDP growth, but you also see people you know like get better jobs and get better like have a better quality of life. And then you can say not only that you know Wall Street had a really good day, but people across the country did too.
0: So this kind of moves us towards a discussion over uh, taking. Sierra's thoughts on splitting it between longevity and sustainability versus the boost. I think they are trying to do both. Personally, I don't think it's going to hold up. And we can look to the model that they're pulling from, which is the European model, where they have high levels of social entitlement programs. These people pay a large amount of taxes to fund these, and they get a lot out from the government. However, the government doesn't always provide the adequate amount and it can't sustain itself. A great example of this is uh, Sweden was up in, what was it, the top three uh, at one point, and they started taking on a lot more of these social welfare programs. Everyone paid through the nose through taxes, and then they realized in the mid-90s this isn't going to be sustainable, and so then they had to to cut back. If you want to see the future of where this would likely go, I, I think that that's probably going to be it. I don't think it's going to be sustainable.
3: If, if we're ever, I, and I, and I sort of got, if we're ever in a position where we get to say we have too much social welfare then that day I will be able to die happy because the, the day when we're able to say like oh we're actually doing too much for the people I feel like that at, at that point I'm like oh no like you know okay maybe we should roll it back we're not there yet we're not there yet. <laughs> I will but the- I think I think there there is a there's a real fear of people you know like oh you know too much of my taxes are going into the government who is doing too much and it's not being efficient enough or whatever but I I, I honestly you know that that isn't even comprehensible to me right now at this time.
0: The thing to note for that, though, is it wasn't that they were like, oh, we're giving too much. It's that the taxes and what people had to tax was not enough to sustain what they had promised. So they had to cut back. It's kind of like Social Security. We don't have enough. And so people aren't getting what they'd paid into. Same similar concept in that point. It's not that it was working so well that the government said, let's cut it back. It's that their programs were not functional.
3: So there was not enough money for them.
2: Yeah, I think it was Correct. Uh, they started a lot of those social welfare programs. Really made them super heavy between the '70s and '90s. They kind of experimented with that, and like Ryan had mentioned, it was the mid '90s where they realized, oh no, we are. <laughs> it's for what our country produces, we will not be able to bring in enough revenue to cover these programs we promised. So they had to scale it back. And also to point out, they actually have a lot more economic freedom than we have. If you look at some, I think it's the Economic Freedom Index. It's done by a few different organizations. They would actually rank Sweden higher as far than America as far as friendly friendliness to private business and everything. So so it's like they have more to work with compared to their population compared to America, and they still weren't able to sustain some of those things. That doesn't mean that we can't have a discussion over how much we are able to slide on the, um, a, what is it, mixed mixed economy scale. Because like, you know, there's this isn't really a discussion of pure capitalism versus pure socialism, Both neither of those really work out that well in reality. It's a discussion of like, hey, can we f- slide a little bit more to the left? Should we slide a little more to the right? Those directionally and not... Political affiliation wise, I'm not talking about that, but um, there's a discussion there. I just don't think that discussion should be had with vague 2,500 page bills that nobody (laughs) knows what's in.
1: think what's interesting is my understanding of this bill is if we improve people's ability to live at a lower wage if we give like working mothers or working single fathers pre-k so they can actually go to work and not have to worry about their children or if we can educate and set up children for success in having a better pre-education we can build toward having a better workforce so I almost feel like this plan is trying to say we're going to slide to the left so that we can slide to the right. Like we're going to improve social functionality in order for us to have more of a workforce to support our capitalistic environment. It, that's kind of my interpretation of it. Um, I don't know if you guys see it that way or maybe have a different perspective. Also, that's my dog. Sorry if you heard her bark. Um
3: one thing I'll say is that if you're worried about the government not having enough money to support these programs, then I have a bill for you. I have a bill for you that is right now in the <laughs> then the, the vote is up. So you know, call call your 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 representative. But you know, jokes aside, I I, I do feel like I mean, Sierra Sarah is right. You know, the 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 bill is meant to sort of uphold the status quo by making some slight changes. And I would, you know, well maybe more than slight changes. But I like honestly I do see this as something that will uphold the society that we're living in with like, you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna kill you. And it's not gonna like make you hyper rich to get you know childcare you know like it's not you know we're, we're not going to like triple your income by doing this but we're going to make it more sustainable for you to live honestly and and again you know i keep joking about it because i don't know what else to do it's like i don't i don't think i'm asking for a lot like i, <laughs> I don't i don't think we're asking for that much um and if experimentation is the name of the game like they did in the 70s and 90s then i feel like it's, you know i think if anything this is a great time to try
0: So I'll dive specifically into one of the things they've talked about and a common gripe that people have that they would like to be fixed and rightfully so is the amount of maternity leave that the United States provides. And Italy would be one example that I dive into here where they get eight weeks of maternity leave before the child is born and 12 weeks after. And that's at 80% of their pay. And that's significantly better than what we have in the United States. One of the unintended consequences that negatively harms those individuals is that what Italy saw was two things. Number one, businesses were less likely to hire women who are of childbearing age or who were pregnant and so those amounts went down because the way that it's set up and our government is proposing something similar you still have payroll tax so if i hire someone who is on maternity leave i'm paying tax on them being out I'm paying them 80% of their pay. I'm paying tax on that and I don't get any work out of them. You can argue the social benefit for those individuals, absolutely. But that's where we talk about the sustainability now and the people who were able to be hired and that the the businesses took on, they were in a great situation. But overall, the amount of women who are hired by these companies went down because it was going to cost them their bottom line and barring some way to enforce that you must hire these people, which you can't, not not in our society anyway, then it winds up negatively harming those people. And it's the middle class who bears a disproportionate weight of this in the taxes, because yes, uh, it is targeting upper, upper, upper wealthy uh, through capital gains tax or through other things. But they also levy higher taxes on the corporations. It's a 37, I think, percent tax that they're proposing on corporations. That means fewer jobs. If if I was hiring the four of us right now, I can't sustain that now because it comes out of my bottom line. You've taken away employees. Go ahead, Sierra.
1: Oh, no, I was waving by because oh. I'll be the one. <laughs> I, I thought, thought you wanted to I will. I will be let
0: go. <laughs> <laughs> so like, unfortunately, <laughs> that's that's one of the realities. Like I on a on a philosophical and ethical level, Marcelo, like I'm in the same boat with you. Like this if i could wave a magic wand and make it happen i would but where we're seeing the split is on a realistic uh, implementation it's it's not
3: sustainable i would i would say that you're waving a magic wand of a different type you're waving the magic wand of like oh this is not possible like you're like oh no like i wish i really wish we could do these things for you but it's, it, the economy won't allow it i'm sorry man like you know you had a child ah shit did you know they're going to fire you for, for having a child i'm sorry like that's not you know we have you seen italy it's not gonna you know it's not gonna happen and and i'm sorry if i you know please tell me to stop if i'm making too many jokes here but no um, i like the jokes women (laughs) are already what if i told you that women are already less likely to be hired especially in positions of leadership what if i told you that those things were already taken into consideration by hr and the fact that the status quo right now makes it pretty much impossible for people to survive without proper maternity leave is an even bigger determinant for them to have children these things are already in place and you know Obviously, I, haven't, I have not read the studies, but I have read other studies that say that these material conditions that disproportionately impact women and, and, and vulnerable populations in the workforce are already here. It doesn't matter what you do right now. Like, if you don't try to make things different for them at, at, right now, then these things are not going to change. And so that's on the side of, like, you know, the Italy situation on, on the side of corporations firing people for having more taxes. I, I again, I, I feel like there's this claim of like basically bowing down to people who exploit us every day for, you know, for their own capital gains. And it's like this idea of like, oh, no, you know, they're, I can't anger Burger King. Are you kidding me? Like they're going to they're going to fire like like 10 cooks tomorrow if we up their tax rates by one percent, like which is not going to happen. Like that is not going to happen because they need to hire people, too.
0: So it won't happen to the larger corporations, the ones again, who are going to be harmed. It's the middle class. If I'm starting a small business, I can't keep up with those corporate tax rates like Burger King, Amazon, the bigger conglomerates.
1: So first I should have a caveat. My opinion is not the opinion of Oshkosh Corporation because I do work for a corporation. So let me just clarify that first. I actually kind of think that This plan lowers the cost of living. Like right now you have the middle class and the low class saying like, pay me more, pay me more. I need more money to sustain my living. But if you, as the government, lower the cost of childcare, which can be upwards of $100 to $200 a week, which won't triple someone's income, but can give them almost a third or a fourth of their income back. If you lower prescription drug costs, allowing people to be healthier in addition to paying less for the medications they need, you're lowering that cost of living. So I almost think that the effect on corporations will be like kind of balanced out by the fact that now that people's cost of living is decreased, they shouldn't in theory be asking to be paid more. So corporations aren't going to have to have huge changes in salaries, which is the brunt of kind of that bottom line. So I kind of think it'll balance itself out with the demand of higher wages when people's cost of living decreases and it kind of gets back to this better, more affordable life that doesn't rely on them increasing a wage.
0: I think that that's a fair point. I think one of the things that the government doesn't do a good job balancing is providing the supply and also maintaining the quality. Uh, in the word, <laughs> I'll pull a Marcelo, if you can't afford your housing and you'd like some housing from the government, Section 8 housing might be for you. Uh, the government can provide things, but they're usually not great living conditions. And they wind up, you know, if, if they, they do provide housing at times. Now, the, the, the demand has outpaced the supply. Uh, supply especially in the wake of the pandemic, unfortunately. But, you know, the government can provide these things, but because they don't have the ability to enforce that this continue at the same rate that the free market was doing. And I feel like it also tends to pull down um, and, and the cost of living might go down. But I think the quality of living would probably go down with it. I, I, I think and that's one of my thoughts on that.
3: It's, it's an hypothetical question, you know, like if, you know, state funded housing is so bad, you know, how do we get here? like why is state housing so bad and it is because it's underfunded too like it's obviously it's disadvantaged but it's also underfunded because it's also like not a priority because we know that we can rely on real estate agents who are like buying houses by the bunch and solo who is buying houses every single minute and like to like up these prices and keep these people housed um and not even fully housed sometimes but that's another issue for another time we can talk about housing later i think i guess i guess i'm out of, of things to say for now because like my take is is always the same is that i feel like if you're going to stop the government because of what you would do to the poor corporations and even the poor mom and shops right if, if if for not trying to harm the mom and pop shops you're going to not regulate the corporations then i don't know what to tell you it's like i feel like they should be regulated and if i had to pick between you know my uncle's store and like their workers having livable conditions then i would probably pick the latter
0: we're coming up on the hot take time anyway. I'm I'm out except for hot takes. Austin, Sierra, any final thoughts before we move on?
1: No, I'm good. Yeah,
2: I guess I'll throw another final thought out there. One thing we see with increasing, and not to say it's an absolutely direct correlation, there's other things that go into it, but when you see a lot of increases of strain on some of these corporations, like a lot of the points that were brought up as far, I think really they could work in a non-globalist setting. Uh, we're definitely in a different era for the past 30-ish, 40-ish years, and we're kind of seeing the metastasis of that in 2020 and 2021 of something that's been coming for the past few decades, uh, corporations' abilities to move and translocate so darn easily. Like we see a lot of manufacturing industries and a lot of what built the backbone of the middle class through America's history being exported to other nations. Not to say that you don't tax corporations at all to incentivize them to come here. I don't know what the fix is, but putting strain on a lot of these sections of the economy that do provide a lot of our jobs that make a lot of space for people to work and innovate, incentivizing those people to take those opportunities overseas to other nations. I don't think that ends very well. And as far as the housing thing, just to kind of tie that in, We see that on a local level between states. Like within our own nation, we see the cost of housing skyrocketing some places. Like Nashville is getting crazy, y'all. And um, some places in Texas is also getting kind of crazy. You see a lot of places being built, but you just see a massive influx of people from other states fleeing really, really bad public policy that is making it harder for people to live. Like what you see in California and New York, people are driven out in the droves. And I don't really, you know, I, I don't think anybody needs an argument for that. You can just look at the news or any statistics on people moving out of those states. They're fleeing policy and in turn driving up a lot of the housing costs in other places so I think there's definitely some conversations to be had as far as where government intervention could take place but now that people have such mobility to move and vote with their movement not just their dollar um, whether it be within our own country state to state or whether it be internationally country to country I think it's a it's kind of a mess to unpackage because you can't limit people's movement that's not the right answer but there's something to be said as far as putting too much strain in the wrong places and displacing people to drive up cost in specific area or drive down wages in specific nations
0: all right we will be right back with our hot takes.
2: Got to turn my volume up there. All
0: right, and we're back.
2: I guess I'll kick off the hot takes for today. So, hot off the presses, we'll start off. Unfortunately, history has a habit of remembering the big movers. That's not really the best way to put it. But history looks very fondly on the FDRs and the Woodrow Wilsons, who did a lot of big government intervention. American history doesn't look as fondly on the Hardings or the Coolidges of the 20s that presided over a ripping economy. They didn't really do as much on government involvement and um, some external factors kind of brought into that after we saw some bigger government intervention in the 30s and everything. But I think Biden's kind of following in the wrong footsteps on that from the Build Back Better plan. I understand we're in a very different space given the past year that we've had, and there's definitely a place for the government to play some role in trying to right some of the wrongs that they caused by shutting down the economy in response to the epidemic or pandemic, excuse me. But I think Biden might be leaning into the footsteps of the big government movers and shakers of the past hundred years instead of what we saw as successful in some of the smaller government hands off things that really caused the economy to rip and roar. We really should be seeing a massive recovery right now. Biden should be presiding over the greatest recovery in American history as far as the economy goes, because it was literally shut down artificially through 2020. We don't see that. The jobs reports have been abysmal for the past few months people are not going back to work. There are some sociological discussions to be had about that with um, people not wanting to return to certain jobs and everything. And I'm all for people wanting to improve their conditions and go to jobs they want to do. But I think we're going to come into some serious hardship before too long. And a lot of people who are advocating for some of these things are going to see their way of life disrupted pretty heavily as the money runs out and as the goods run out. If you don't produce anything, there's not really much to go. And our country is not producing a whole lot at the moment. I think that the Build Back Better plan should be dismantled and voted piece by piece. All Each page should be read from the floor. And I think that Congress should be forced to do that for every bill that they pass so yeah transparency is key i'd like to see our government flourish and prosper in what they do i'd like them to do less and i like them to be transparent with the few things that they do i think they'll do it well if they'll be transparent and do less
3: it's me i'm next i honestly like thinking about the things that i believe in things like you know the the tax breaks and the tax hikes for people who need to be taxed and, like all of these things that i am advocating for and many of these things are in the bill and the fact that advocating for these things makes me radical is a little worrying first second I do feel like we need a separate conversation about housing and because we barely touch the surface level things here and 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 it's because I feel like same with everything else and a lot of things that our president, the Build Back Better plan, is like they're targeting corporations, people who have a lot of money, but then people opposing the bill are like, well, you don't know how it's like, you don't want people to lose their jobs, you don't want people to like, you know, you don't want people to suffer, right? Do you? And like, no, we don't want people to suffer. That's why we're trying to pass this bill in the first place. Like, will jobs be lost and taken to other places where they can exploit their workers? Sure they won't be able to exploit their workers here. They won't be able to do those things that they do in other places here because I thought that's what we cared about. We didn't care about keeping the economy high by keeping these corporations who are bad here. We actually cared about people, period. We just cared about people. My takeaway from this is that I don't, believe there is a way forward for the Democratic Party without the Build Back Better plan. They have entrenched themselves to this bill. At least 48 of them have. And I feel like they need to pass this bill, same as before. And if they didn't pass this bill, then things are going to be looking very grim for them. They are running on a campaign for change. And like Austin said, there it's a very pivotal moment for U.S. history right now. I feel like a bill like this is exactly what we need. And unlike some other people in this call, I feel like if they were to vote on all of this individually, I don't know if we, I think we would have be having like a hundred different conversations of forty-eight, fifty-two.
0: All right, so my hot take is number one, if this were to be passed, which my projection, it won't be passed, not in its current form. I think Manchin and cinema hold too much weight. there, siding with the majority and it's either gonna be slashed up or it's gonna die. I think that if it were to pass though, hypothetically, you're gonna see a drop in the economy. We've seen this modeled in the Scandinavian countries in the 60s and 70s and had to pull back in the 90s. Human history shows us that it's not sustainable, not in its current form. And as much as we would like to be able to help every single person we possibly could, there's an argument for how this might be made better, But with that, you also see the negatives that go along with it, which is why we do this show in the first place is to have the discussions that unfortunately our congressional members are not having in the first place. My second hot take is that this will take high taxes from everyone to support President Biden and the others are lying about who is going to be taxed. Some of the things that they've proposed are if they would consider you to be upper class, except for the exemptions they carve out for themselves, if you happen to make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, 400 thousand three hundred two hundred thousand dollars is not considered high upper class that would be say for example a dentist making just a salary that that's high compared to a large portion of americans but that's not upper class but what this bill will do through its taxes will disincentivize people from from actually actualizing themselves and making the money that they could have because it's funding the welfare systems, but not funding them well, because the government is great at taking the taxes, but not great at allocating them. So you take taxes from someone who's earned them doesn't mean that we're helping those people. It means the government has collected the money and then they put it in another program that they voted on. And we didn't see any benefit personally from that. It also disproportionately hurts the middle class and prevents upward mobility because you are taxed at a disproportionate rate, regardless of what they're telling you to fund. This It's needed and it will happen. You're going to be prevented from upward mobility. We saw before the pandemic when we had very, very loose reins on the economy. We had the greatest economy in 20 plus years because we didn't mess with it. We didn't pass these programs. And proportionately to every single socioeconomic class and racial class, there was a rise in standard of living and quality of life. And the last thing that I'll say before I'm done with my hot takes is that the Democrats are holding the American people hostage for a social system that's not popular. By the polling of the American people and by the people they put into office to represent them, this is not the majority opinion. And to try to cudgel the people who are standing against that and ostracize them as the troublemakers is pretty problematic. Don't let them blame the fact that this bill failed as it should on the people who did what they were supposed to do to represent their constituents.
1: So I have three hot takes. My first one is about budget reconciliation. I I don't think the United States at this time can afford to have a shutdown. I think that's going to have a huge political impact in whether or not both of these bills succeed. We can't afford to artificially or on purpose shut down our government. It would be really detrimental to the United States people. It would be another blow to our economy which doesn't need that right now. So I I do think that's going to have a lot of weight in this discussion and a lot of weight in people's decision on whether or not they vote for this. My second hot take is on will this succeed in its goal? Is the Build Back Better plan going to benefit Americans socially and benefit Americans economically? And and I think the answer to to one of them is yes. With economically, I'm not really sure. Socially, I think that this bill does have the potential to lower the cost of living for Americans. I think it really and truly lowers a lot of the costs that can be a burden to people to not put them back to work, which leads to that second half of will this be successful economically? The goal of this bill is to create a more sustainable workforce. Putting more people to work. Allowing them to work so that they're not hampered by the burdens they have by being unhealthy or with childcare, or with housing or even with their financial debt that they have in schooling. So I think if I talk about this bill passing, I I do think there's a likelihood it will pass. I think that um, the two congress uh, men that are holding out are, are doing some political posturing and honestly I feel that the political pool that the budget reconciliation and that this build back better plan has, that political pool is more powerful than their own individual stances for their constituents. I, I do think there's a-, a strong likelihood this would pass. And I think my third point is that I do think this is a pivotal point for the United States. We may be changing in from a sustainment type policy instead of stimuluses. Um, so that's my hot take.
0: All right. Uh, First off, thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us today and standing in for Josh. It was lovely having you, and you performed very well, as always. Great discussion. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars, and we'll catch you back here at noon central next week. Goodbye for now.